St. James Lutheran Church. I'm glad that you're joining us this morning for Sunday morning worship on this Trinity Sunday. A big announcement today is that this is the last Sunday where we will not be meeting in person for many of us. Next Sunday, uh, June 14th, uh, we are going to have three services that you could potentially attend. Uh, 7.45, uh, 9 o'clock in the morning, and 10.15 in the morning. And a couple quick notes about that, first of all, and the main one is for those of you who should not attend, uh, out of wisdom, for health reasons, because either you're at risk or because you live with somebody who's at risk of getting sick, what we're doing by reopening in-person worship is going to be in addition to the live stream. It's going to be something that we are going to be continuing the live stream, encouraging you guys to stay at home. And if you need communion, please get a hold of me. I can bring it to you, or you can come here and receive it. But for those of you who can attend and would like to attend, 7.45, 9 o'clock, 10.15. Now, what we're asking you to do is to sign up to attend each one of these services, the service that you want to attend. We'd like you to sign up to attend this service because we're trying to limit the number of people here inside the sanctuary to a safe number. And so uh, the ways that you can sign up, the main way is to go to the church's website, stjamesglencarbon.org, and on the front page you will find um, a link to a page where you can sign up. Uh, the other way to do it is if you, for whatever reason, uh, can't be on the internet, 
uh, call me or text me. Uh, my personal phone number is on the webpage, and then I can sign you up. What I'm asking you not to do is email the church, and the reason why is because uh, we don't have an office manager right now. A side announcement, if anybody's interested in that position or knows of somebody who'd be interested in that position, please let me know. And so if you email the church, there's a chance that nobody will see that. We're checking those accounts, but it might slip through the cracks. The best way to do it is to call me or or text me on my phone. Also, and I know that this is going to be inconvenient, uh, you'll need to sign up every week. So many of you have already been signing up uh, for June 14th. When that service is over, you'll have to get back on the website and sign up for June 21st. So uh, if you have any questions about that, please let me know. Also, we're going to ask the people who come here for in-person worship, uh, we're going to strongly encourage you to wear masks. And I know that many of you think, I don't really need a mask, and it's possible that you don't need a mask, but there are some people who will only come back and worship if people have masks on out of concern for getting sick. And so as an act of love for those people, we're asking everybody that you uh, wear masks. When you come back to service next week, uh, you're going to notice that the service is going to look different. This is a temporary thing. We're going to slim the liturgy down. We're not getting rid of the liturgy, but we're going to slim it down until we can have um, uh, more appropriately linked service times. Uh, The reason why is because even with the hour and 15 minute uh, times between service start times, uh, we still need plenty of time to sanitize after the service is over. And it's supposed to, we're told it's supposed to, uh, there's supposed to be a 15 minute gap between when it gets sanitized and when people come back in. And so for that reason too, uh, we're asking you not to show up early uh, because we'll be getting the sanctuary ready. Uh, but to show up as close to the appropriate time as possible. Uh, There'll be an usher here that will uh, help you be seated. Uh, So we're trying to space out inside the sanctuary. And so it's going to be a little bit different. It's going to be a little bit weird. But we are going to be able, many of us are going to be able to be together. So any questions about that, let me know. And if not, uh, feel free to jump on the website and sign up or get a hold of me. Okay, let's begin worship. And we begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, be the God of your people today. We confess that we have worshipped too many other gods. We have devoted ourselves to all too many different values. Turn our hearts to you again. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, be the God of your people today. We confess that we have visited all too many sanctuaries. We have tried to find the sources of life in all too many other places. Turn our hearts to you again. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, be the God of your people today. We turn to you, to you alone, to be our God, our only God. Forgive our sins. Give us spiritual integrity. Give us wholeness and holiness. Answer us in the name of Christ, for he has promised to intercede for us. It's in him that we pray in the fellowship of his body. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the word of the gospel from Romans chapter 5. 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The creed for Trinity Sunday, as we do every year, is the Athanasian Creed, and it's long. I'm going to read it to you here in a second. Uh, just a, a couple of quick notes before we start. One is, is that uh, frequently the Athanasian Creed is going to use the word Catholic. Uh, the word Catholic means the universal church. It doesn't mean just the Roman Catholic Church, but all of God's people on earth and in heaven. So... Um, when we say Catholic, we are not confessing that we are other than Lutheran. We are confessing that we, with all Christians, belong to Jesus' church. The other thing is at the end of the Athanasian Creed, and this is confusing for a lot of us Christians uh, who grew up in the Reformation tradition, it's going to say that all those who have done good will enter into eternal life, and those who have done evil into eternal fire. The Athanasian Creed isn't uh, teaching salvation by works. It's actually just reflecting biblical language, that those who are saved by faith will perform good works, and on the last day they will be judged on the basis of those good works. There's not enough time to get into everything that that means right now, but just don't be confused by that when we get there. It's not teaching another gospel. It's teaching one of the um, expansive and many outworkings of what the gospel actually means in Christian lives. And here's the third thing. The Athanasian Creed, the, especially the first part of it, is about the Trinity. There's going to be a lot of stuff in here that you don't understand. And that's okay. Uh, we as Christians sometimes confess things that are too big for the human mind to grasp. Doctrines like the Trinity. When we read this, don't resist the urge to bleep over the things that we don't get. But instead, work slowly over them. When you get a chance later on today, come back to the Athanasian Creed. You can find it online. And think about some of these things and let it soak into your brain. If you wonder sometimes, why is the Trinity important? Why can't we just worship God? Or why can't we just worship Jesus? What does the Trinity actually accomplish? Two things you can do. One is um, you can show up at the Zoom Bible study right after this where we're talking about the spiritual gifts this morning in Ephesians 4, the discussion of the spiritual gifts is going to start off with the discussion of the Trinity. That's the first thing you can do. The second thing you can do, and I feel a little bit shameless for saying this, is at some point this week, I'm going to give away a book. I'm trying to do this uh, once a month now. I'm going to give away a book and, uh, to whoever uh, responds to me and requests it. And the book that I'm going to give uh, this month is a book by Michael Reeves about the Trinity. It's a really super excellent discussion of why the Trinity is important, what it means, and why we as Christians need to believe in the Trinity. It's short, it's simple, it can be grasped by lay people as well as trained theologians. And uh, if you follow me on Facebook, and I'm not going to tell you that you should because that seems a little bit over the top, but if you do, uh, I'll be offering that this week. And so uh, jump on there and let me know that you want that book. It's a good one. And even if you don't get it, uh, it's not expensive. I would encourage you to purchase that book. More info on that later. Let's uh, say the Athanasian Creed. I'm going I'm to read it for us. Whoever desires to be saved must, above all, hold the Catholic faith. Whoever does not keep it whole and undefiled will without doubt perish eternally. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity. Trinity is a fancy word that means in three, Unity means, of course, one. 
neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Holy Spirit is another. But the Godhead of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father infinite, the Son infinite, the Holy Spirit infinite. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. Just as there are not three uncreateds or three infinites, but one uncreated and one infinite. In the same way, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit almighty, and yet there are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God. So the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, and yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. Just as we are compelled by the Christian truth to acknowledge each distinct person as God and Lord, so also are we prohibited by the Catholic religion to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father is not made, nor created, nor begotten by anyone. The Son is neither made nor created, but begotten of the Father alone. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. Thus there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And in this Trinity, none is before or after another. None is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal with each other and co-equal, so that in all things, as has been stated above, the Trinity in unity, in unity in Trinity, is to be worshipped. Therefore, whoever desires to be saved must think thus about the Trinity. But it's also necessary for everlasting salvation that one faithfully believes the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word incarnation just means took on flesh, became human. Therefore, it is the right faith that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is at the same time both God and man. He is God, begotten from the substance of the Father before all ages. And he is man, born from the substance of his mother in this age. Perfect God and perfect man, composed of a rational soul and human flesh equal to the Father with respect to his divinity, less than the Father with respect to his humanity. Although he is God and man, he is not two, but one Christ. One, however, not by the conversion of the divinity into flesh, but by the assumption of the humanity into God. One altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. For as the rational soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, God Almighty, 
from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. At his coming, all people will rise again with their bodies and give an account concerning their own deeds. And those who have done good will enter into eternal life, and those who have done evil into eternal fire. This is the Catholic faith. Whoever does not believe it faithfully and firmly cannot be saved. The Gospel reading this morning is the very last section of Matthew chapter 28. And it's good that, we're, of course, it's going to include the Trinity in the baptismal formula, which many of you are familiar with. But it's also, because it's the baptismal formula, is going to help get us into the theme of the sermon. Remember, we're in Romans chapter 6, where Paul is talking about the results of our baptism, mainly union with Christ. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age.
epistle reading for this morning, going back to Romans chapter 6. This morning we're going to read verses 1 through 14. And Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be destroyed so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Jesus, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." So just to reset where we've been the past couple weeks, in Romans chapter 6, Paul tells us that we cannot continue living in sin as Christians because we've been baptized into Jesus Christ. And because we've been baptized into Christ, that means we've been connected to him for all eternity now. When Jesus was on the cross, we died with him. When Jesus rose from the dead, we rose with him to new life. And since when Jesus was on the cross, he died to sin, That means that you and I who are believers in Jesus have died to sin as well. We no longer, remember what this means going back to Romans chapter 5. We no longer live in the kingdom of unrighteousness, sin, and death. We now have been transferred into the kingdom of righteousness, grace, life, Jesus, and us. We rule and reign in this kingdom with Jesus. And so we can't continue in sin any longer. Real quick side note. I point out here that what Paul is doing. So last week we talked about, in verse 11, he ends up, this is the main verse that we looked at last week. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin. So know that in your minds. Know that those of you who are believers actually are dead to sin. You were dead to the reign of sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. You have to know this. You have to believe this. Real quick side note. The order for Paul is baptized into union with Christ that's the reality, and now you should believe that. It's not, the way, it's not the other way around. The way that I grew up as a Baptist, and I know that some of you who are watching are Baptist, is you believe first, you have faith first, and then you get baptized as a response to your faith. But here in Romans 6, it's the baptism that's primary. And faith is something that we do in light of our baptism. Faith is something that we're called to in light of our union with Christ. Because you have been united with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection, now you need to keep on believing that. Somebody's going to say, well, aren't we saved by faith? 
Yeah, but what Paul means is it doesn't mean that faith is the instrument that saves you. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the instrument that saves you. Faith, because we've been baptized into Jesus, is a response to that. What does Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 say? It's by grace that we're saved. Grace being shorthand code for the gift of God in Jesus Christ, by, by, by God uniting us to his son Jesus' death and resurrection. It's by grace that we've been saved through faith. And that's not of ourselves, it's a gift of God. So here, as throughout the New Testament, faith is a response to what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Baptism is first, then faith is a response to that. That's just a side note here. Now let's get into the text this morning. Last, night, last Sunday, I'm sorry, we talked about because of our union with Christ, we need to reckon ourselves one with Jesus. We need to consider ourselves. We need to believe that in spite of our experiences, we are actually dead to sin in Jesus Christ. Well, now we've got a problem here because your experience and my experience as Christians, and even those of you who are unbelievers, you've experienced this, is that we do sin. We are controlled sometimes by sinful habits, sinful thoughts. What are we going to do with that? There's a few options that Christians down through the ages have tried out to make sense of this. But since I'm a Lutheran, and I'm talking to many of you who are Lutherans, and and many more who, though you aren't Lutheran, you come from the Reformation heritage, let me talk talk to you about the one option that's most readily available to us in our theology is sort of a simplistic forgiveness of sins. Yeah, you know, you're a Christian, Jesus has saved you, you're going to keep on sinning, and what you really need to do is just keep on asking for forgiveness of sins, and it'll be okay, you know, don't worry about it too much. Of course, this is 100% true. After we sin as Christians, we should ask for forgiveness for those sins. We're guaranteed by the gospel that God will always forgive those sins, no questions asked. But still, if we understand forgiveness in that sort of shallow legal sense where you just ask for forgiveness and God says, okay, I won't think about it anymore. We're left short of our actual needs, our psychological and emotional needs. Because I, want, I, don't, I don't just want to be forgiven of my sin. I don't want to just know that what I do is okay and it's not going to be held against me on the last day. I want to know that it's not okay and that Jesus is desperately working to cleanse me from that sin. Don't shortchange the gospel by saying, if you just ask God to forgive your sins, that's okay. A lot of times we do that. We make it too simplistic. And by doing that, we sort of okay and give a sort of stamp of approval to continued sinful behavior. And the whole point of Romans chapter 6 is that we can't continue in sin, even though grace abounds wherever sin abounds, because we've died to it. There has to be something more. I'll give you a quick example of this problem. Uh, I was talking to one of my students, and I can't remember if, um, if it was here at church or one of my students at the high school who said to me this year in the conversation, why can't God just forgive everybody? Like it, it just seems like it would be nice of him just to say, I forgive everybody. And of course, on a surface level, that does seem sort of nice. But what we have to remember is when we say that God's forgiving sins, we don't just mean that he's saying, it's all okay. God is trying, God's goal in the forgiveness of sins is to transform us, is to make us new, is to help us be holy, to help us look more and more like Jesus. I mean, I guess there's a way that God could just say, okay, everybody's sins are forgiven. But part of this is this walk in newness of life that almost none of us want. Jesus brings us along on that. 
a simple stamp of approval isn't going to do the trick. You know in your own heart it won't do the trick for you, that you want more than that. You want to be holy. You want to be right. You want to be good. You want to live justly and honorably and honestly and with real genuine love for the people close to you. This is what Romans 6 is about. We're going to start to transition into that uh, today, but we can't forget verse 11. Let me, let me show you what I mean. In verse 12, which is our, our, this is the new, 12, 13, and 14 are the new verses for today. Verse 12 is going to push us back to verse 11. Look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. There's a command. Don't let sin reign in your body. It's not good enough just to say, I'm sorry, and I'm just going to continue doing what I want to do in my life because I just know I can always you know, go to communion and ask Jesus to forgive me, and he will. You know, or kneel down at night and say, God, I sinned today. Forgive me, and he will. There's a command here. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't let it have control of you. But in the middle of this command is this word, therefore. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. That word, therefore, is so super important. Because by saying, therefore, Paul is saying, I just said something in verses 1 through 11, the consequence of which is verse 12. Specifically, verse 11, right? You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. This is not just some sort of like random command. He's saying because of your identity in Christ, because in Jesus' death and resurrection, you have died to sin and you have been raised to righteousness. Because of that, therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. It's our identity that is the ground of our new, fresh behavior in Jesus Christ. The good works that we do, the good thoughts that we think, the good words that we speak, the genuine love and selflessness we have for our neighbors doesn't come out of our own strength. It comes because of who we are in Jesus Christ. Do you remember the illustration I gave you last week? I'm just going to touch on it again real quick if I can. The novel, Rebecca, where the main character is sort of a poor, lower middle class servant girl who marries this fantastically wealthy man, becomes his wife on his estate, and the housekeeper on that estate is trying to control her and intimidate her and rule and reign over her, and she lets her for a while because she's easily controlled, easily intimidated, easily ruled over until she remembers, until she considers who she is. She is married to the master of the state, and that makes her the mistress of the estate, And because of that, here's the therefore from verse 12. Because of that, she's actually in charge of the housekeeper. She doesn't have to obey the housekeeper. This is what Paul is saying. Because of who we are in Jesus Christ, therefore, you and I are mistress of the estate. We don't have to obey sin. In fact, we're commanded to not let sin reign over us because we don't have to let sin reign over us. Sometimes we do, unfortunately. But it's not real. It's fake. We're like prisoners who've been in a cell, and by the power of Jesus Christ, the cell door has been unlocked, and we're free to go out. And we escape into this freedom in Christ. Unfortunately, sometimes we go back into the prison cell and shut the door. But it's fake because the prison door's not locked. You can actually get out anytime you want. This feeling of being trapped by sin is not who you are. It's not your ultimate reality. It's not your identity. We are, in Jesus Christ, free. Therefore, do not let sin reign 
in your mortal bodies. And it will try to. It will try to own you. It will tell you, look, you're going to have to get drunk. You're not going to have a good time if you don't drink. It's trying, to own, it's trying to cajole you. It's trying to draw you back underneath its reign. Sometimes it'll try and threaten you. It'll say things to you like, look, you ha- you're going to have to lose your temper. You know that they don't listen to you unless you raise your voice. If you don't speak firmly with them, they're not going to pay attention to you. And you need them to pay attention. They need to pay attention to you. It's going to promise you. It's going to threaten you. It's going to tell you that if you don't, that if you don't obey it, life is not going to be what you think it should be. Don't listen to it. It's not who you are. It's not your identity. Let's go down to verse 13, where Paul starts to unpack this. He said, this is exactly, in verse 13, what I mean by don't let it rain over you. Look what he says. Don't present your members. Members, he means body parts. He also means parts of you personally, your thoughts, your words, your emotions, your desires, your plans, as well as your body parts. Don't present your members to sin as instruments, as tools for unrighteousness. Don't present your body parts to sin as tools for the reign of unrighteousness. Don't present your thoughts and your emotions and your words and and your plans to sin as tools that sin can use to rule and reign over you through unrighteousness. Instead, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought to death from life, because that's what you are, verse 11. You are alive to God in Jesus Christ. And your members, your body parts, to God as instruments, as tools for righteousness. There's a distinction here. Did you, did you notice this distinction? He says, don't present your members, your, the individual parts of who you are to sin, to, to sin, but present yourselves, your whole person to God. He doesn't say, don't present your whole self to sin, because you can't. That's not your identity. He doesn't say first, he doesn't say don't present your body parts or the different parts of you to God because God actually owns your whole person. Instead, he says, don't present your members, the different parts of you, to sin, but present yourselves, all of you, to God. Sin can't rule and reign over you. You don't live in that realm anymore. But, like verse 12 says, remember verse 13 is an explanation of verse 12. Sin will try and get little parts of you. It will try to control can try to tr- control your words. You know, it'll say, you know, the, the, your, your actions are great, but I want your words. I want your emotions. I want your th- thoughts. And when we allow sin to have the different members, parts of us, as instruments to rule and reign over, there's two responses that we're going to have as Christians because it's not our identity to be ruled and reigned over by sin. One is going to be horror guilt, deep feelings of guilt that who our identity is in Jesus Christ has somehow been messed up by this one part of us being controlled, being ruled over momentarily by sin. The other thing that we can do, here's the other response, is dissociation. Christians all too often do this, where they'll just sort of ignore until it's passed out of mind that this one part of my life is ruled over not by Jesus, not by me, not by righteousness, but by sin and unrighteousness and death. There's a great example of this, if I can uh, be a, a tad literary for a second. There's a poem by Oliver Goldsmith called The Vicar of Wakefield, back in the 1700s, 1800s maybe. 
And in this poem, there's a girl who gets seduced by this guy who betrays her. And in the poem, she knows it's wrong, but she's in love, and she's going to let sin reign over that part of her life. But when this guy abandons her, the poem says this, when lovely woman stoops to folly and finds too late that men betray, what art could soothe her melancholy? What charm could drive her guilt away? Well, she's just crushed with, she's been torn apart. Like who she is, part of her has been ruled and reigned over by someone that shouldn't be ruling and reigning over her, by a sin and an unrighteousness that has no control over her, but she's given it to them and it's torn her up, and now there's no art or charm that could soothe the guilt and the grief that she feels. Well, in 1914, T.S. Eliot writes the poem, The Wasteland. She describes a, a much different person. He describes the postmodern person. And in this poem, he quotes this poem from Oliver Goldsmith's Vicar of Wakefield, only it's about a much different type of woman. And he says this about his woman, who's just had a sexual encounter, a random hookup encounter with a man who comes to her apartment. When lovely woman stoops to folly and paces about her room again alone, she smooths her hair with automatic hand and puts a record on the gramophone. She's bored with it, he says in the poem. She's bored with the whole encounter. And at the end, she kind of puts it out of mind. She gets up, smooths her hair, puts some music on. That's the second thing that we do. And most of us, like dissociation is a psychological word. Sometimes it's super serious. It's a super serious health crisis event. Most of us, though, manage to do it on lower levels. Most of us manage to say, well, this part of my life, I'm just not going to think about it, you know. It's, 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 I'm one with Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian. And most of us can put stuff, our sin, out of our mind to the point where we no longer even think about it. I was, another example, I was talking to a guy next week who quite possibly is watching this right now, who was telling me in the course of the conversation, he was saying, he knows some people who were talking about the Apostle Paul, of all people. The Apostle Paul and saying, I, I don't really, I, these people were saying to him, I, I think that Paul's wrong about so many different things. I, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I can't agree with Paul about X, Y, and Z. And this guy was telling me, like, I just don't see how like, a Christian can think like that. You can read the Bible and be like, I'm not going to believe part of it. A couple minutes later, he goes on to describe to me that he himself is not living a sexually pure life, according to the Bible. And so I asked him, well, hold up just a second. So you're saying that you don't like it when people disagree with Paul, but you and your actions are disagreeing with Paul. And he was like, well, I'm not, I'm not really bashing Paul like they are. I just happen in this one area not to be doing what he says we should do. Well, it's not just him. I do this too, right? You do it too as a Christian. There's parts of our lives that, that the enemy tries to come and sneak control. It's okay. You're living on the other side of the river now. You're living on the other side of Martin Lloyd-Jones's road. You're in a different kingdom. I can't control you. I'll try to woo you over here. Just a little part of you that you should give to me. It would be good if you did this. It would be fun or it would be rewarding or it would give you purpose and meaning. Just one part. And we manage to turn that side of our brains off. Materialism, materialism is a huge one, Right? Materialism is a way, we, especially in, in, in Western culture, where we can say, I belong to Jesus. He loved me. He gave himself for me. I've been united to him in his death and resurrection. But I just need to have money to be happy. I need to have a nicer house to be happy. I need to know that I'm financially secure. That's a sneak attack control 
by the enemy. And we can sort of shut that off because we look around and everybody else has the same pursuit of money going on in their lives. But don't fall for that. Let not sin therefore reign in your bodies to obey it and its lust thereof, as the King James Version says. I was talking to another example. I was talking to one of you several months ago about being organized, right? Organization is good, just like sex is good, just like money is good. Organization is good. But when the enemy uses it to gain control over us, he makes us once again, even though our identity is free, we are the mistress of the manor, he makes us a slave to that. If our desk is disorganized, we just can't work. If things are out of order, we just can't cope with it until it gets fixed. It's not not a bad thing. It's not terribly damaging. But it's a way that the enemy controls us and rules and reigns over us. These little sneak attacks. And by dissociation, it's our members. It's not us. One member sort sort of gets underneath the rule of the enemy, and we can ignore it. But don't let sin reign in your members. It's one more quick example, and I'm on a hot streak now of giving you great divorce C.S. Lewis examples, and I'm going to try to continue that as long as I can. There's one scene in The Great Divorce where a wife meets her husband, who is in hell and does not want to go to heaven. And when she meets him, she's confused because he's shrunk to this little tiny size, but he's holding a chain, and connected to the chain is this man who's dressed as like you've seen maybe spoofs of this like a melodramatic stage actor from England in the late 1800s with a top hat and with lots of melodramatic motions, who says, who, it's the melodramatic actor who responds to his wife to say things like, I always worked hard for you, I gave my best for you, and did you care in a melodramatic fashion? You see what, the guys, what Lewis is picturing here. It's like this guy, there's one part of his life that's dissociated from himself. It's like this other person under the rule of the enemy, and you think, oh, I've got control over this, right? I don't really have to be addicted to money. I don't have to be addicted to shopping. I don't have to be addicted to being organized. But it's actually a creature that you think that you're holding the chain, but, the ch- but it's controlling you. And over the course of this conversation, as her husband refuses to repent and as the melodramatic actor gets stronger and stronger, the husband shrinks and shrinks and shrinks until he's no longer visible, at which point the melodramatic actor has won out loops up the chain, and walks back to hell. You cannot, let ha- you cannot let one member of who you are be controlled by the enemy because you are in Jesus Christ. Can you continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. May it not be. No way. Do not let, because you're in Jesus Christ, do not let sin therefore reign in your members. Okay, on to verse 13, which says this. Because sin will have no dominion over you, you are destined to not be ruled over by sin. You can't be ruled over by sin because you are dead to sin. You are living in a different kingdom since you are not under law but under grace. Sin is not the boss of you because you are not under law but under grace. Now this line is, if you're, if you're playing along at home, this line is super surprising. I totally expect Paul to say something like this. Sin will not have, have dominion over you since you are not under unrighteousness or you are not under slavery, or you are not under the rule of Adam, if you want to go back to chapter 5 language, or even you're not under the rule of the enemy, but you're under the rule of grace. But instead, he says, you're not under the law. Somehow the law, the law of God, he means, gets put in the category of in Adam, unrighteousness. 
the enemy, sin, death. Why is this the case? He's not going to unpack it here. It's almost like, a, almost like a symphony. He brings in this one theme and weaves it in here and then lets it go silent for a bit. And when he gets to chapter 7, he's going to unpack that theme and really talk about what does it mean to be a Christian and to live with the law. Not under the law, but with the law. How much can it help us? How much can it not help us? But here he's going to start us off by saying, and it's an echo of Romans chapter 5. Remember what he said back there? Now the law came in to increase the trespasses. He's going to say the same thing. You might think that the law can help you here. You might think, okay, so i just got to tell myself, don't be materialistic. I've got to tell myself, don't have sex with somebody, not my wife. I have to tell myself, don't be controlled by organization. It's okay if you're disorganized. The law, though, is not going to help you. That's not the answer. And one reason why is because the enemy is going to use the law to tempt you to think that Jesus is a tyrant. You want to be a Christian? Okay. World needs holy people, too. If you want to follow that guy, like if you just want to have all the life and the freedom sucked out of your life, that's, some people are like that. Some people need to have a crutch. Some people need to have something where they think that, like, if I have to, have, I have to obey rules to get along, that's fine. Go ahead and do that. That's the lie that the enemy is going to tell you. What Paul is saying here is you are not under the law. This is not a situation where you're under the law. In fact, Satan's going to promise you, unrighteousness is going to promise you, your sin is going to promise you that if you let me rule and reign over you, I will give you freedom. But you know that that's not the case. To go back to some previous examples, materialism is just a fancy word that means slavery to money and things. Right? We were told by unrighteousness and by the enemy that free sex is going to liberate you, and what it means is just addiction. Addiction to bad behaviors, addiction to pornography, broken homes, fractured relationships, callousness to other human relationships, the inability inability to form intimate relationships with others, all the things that the sexual revolution has led to. It's not, so we we were also told, like, the freedom of self-expression is going to, to, to lead to liberation, and it just leads to toxic communication. Just saying whatever you think. It's a certain sort of freedom, but it's actually slavery. Don't believe the enemy's lies. You are not under law. You are the real free ones in Jesus Christ. You don't need the law to help you. Because in Jesus Christ, you are the mistress of the manor. You rule over everything. We went to Forest Park, Angela, and I took the kids uh, for a walk in Forest Park last weekend. Not one time did I say to my children, look, rule number one, you have to go, with me at the end, go home with me at the end of this walk. Didn't have to make that rule. Because they belong to me and I belong to them. That's what we do. We go home together. You don't have to make a rule for me saying you have to kiss your wife. I'm free to kiss my wife. I'm allowed to kiss my wife. We do not live under the law. We live under grace. This is to tie this back into the notion of freedom and what real freedom is. This is one of the things that Paul, remember this is an issue. Remember what the issue is. The issue is bondage. Who's going to be in charge? Who's going to rule and reign? And when we get together next time, we'll talk about slavery. He talks about slavery a lot in the upcoming verses. But underneath that theme of not being under the law, but being real free people, let me tell you this real quick story and then we'll be done. Uh, the work, uh, WPA projects uh, underneath uh, Roosevelt's New Deal, we're familiar with uh, built roads and sidewalks and uh, big, beautiful lodges like Pere Marquette. There's uh, a bunch of other different projects that were done as well, too. And one of the most fascinating ones 
was a collection of audio recordings, interviews with former slaves who were still alive, many of them in their 80s and 90s and the 1930s. These audio interviews of their recollections, and there's a real famous one that if you uh, look online, it gets mentioned quite a bit, of a woman named Temple Cummins. and She was interviewed in the 1930s about her recollections of slavery, and she told this story. She said, this is a quote from her, you can find PDFs of the transcripts of these audio recordings. Mother was working in the house, and she cooked too, uh, Temple said. She said she used to hide in the chimney corner and listen to what the white folks say. And when freedom was declared, master wouldn't tell them. But mother, she heard him telling missus that the slaves were free, but they didn't know it. And he's not going to tell them until he makes another crop or two. When mother heard that, she said she slipped out the chimney corner and uh, run to the field. Uh, I'm sorry, slipped out of the chimney corner and cracked her heels together four times and shouted, I'm free, I'm free. And then she runs to the field against master's will and tells all the other slaves and they quit work. And then she runs away and in the night she slips into a big ravine near the house and has them bring me to her, Temple says. Master, he comes out with his gun and shoots at mother and me, but she runs down the ravine and gets away with me. That's what we're talking about. Slavery is no longer your identity. To keep on working for the master, just because he says, I got another crop or two that I want to get in with you before I let you go, goes against your identity. And all too often we think of sin as Christians as something fun that we can't do now, or like that part of my life I used to enjoy, but now I don't get to, or part of my life that I don't control, you know, I just lose my temper. And instead, what Paul is calling us to in Romans 6 is to think of slavery the way Temple Cummins' mom thought of it. I am free. You can no longer control me. You can no longer tell me what to do. You are not the boss of me. And what we should think of God as doing here, because remember in verse 11 he says we are alive to God, is when I was reading that story, if you're any kind of human being at all, you would find yourself rooting for Temple and her mom to get away. When the master comes out with his gun and shoots at him, you should feel like the desperation of that moment. You should be rooting for her. That's what God is doing for you right now. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross and rise from the dead to give you new identity in him. You are no longer a slave of sin. He's rooting like the Dickens for you to be free. He's in you working to be free. Because of who you are in Christ, therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would help us to see sin for what it is, attempts to rule over us. Help us to see us for who we are, children of you, bound up through baptism in your son, Jesus Christ, so that what's true of him is true of us. Help us to live in this freedom. Help us to live lives that are dead to sin and not present our members to instrument, as instruments of unrighteousness. But help us be alive to you, ruling and reigning with you. We need your help because our eyes and our ears and all of our senses see one thing that we know is not real from Scripture. Help us see reality. Help us see your glory, the glory of your freedom in the gospel. Be with St. James as uh, for those of us who are members here and will be attending here. Keep us safe as we begin attending in person next week. Help us to be wise. Help us to know when to make decisions to make changes. Uh, Help uh, everybody who can uh, be here. uh, Help them to be healthy enough to be here. Be with those who can't be here and restore them to health so that soon we can all worship together as one family. Be with our culture now, Lord, as it's 
Uh, it's, it, it's, it's one thing after another. And just in light of the events of the past two weeks, let me repeat uh, my prayer to you, Father, and ask you from last week and ask you once again to forgive me for the racism that's in my own heart, to forgive me for uh, the way I love myself more than I love other people, to forgive me for the way I look for excuses not to love other people, whether it's because they're not like me or because they don't like me or because they're not close to me, because they live in different places than me, because they worship differently than I do, different gods. Help me to love in your name all people with the selflessness that Jesus Christ himself evidenced when he died and shed his blood for all humans. Give us this grace, Father. We cannot work this up in ourselves. The answer to the problems of the past week is not education. It's not political. We need you to perform a mighty work to bring about your kingdom. Help us, your church, to be a part of that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Now let's pray together in Jesus' name the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. When trials come, no Treasures of the